This is a podcast from Minute Media. Now I have the time of my life. No, I never felt like this before. Yes, I swear it's a truth. And I owe it all to you. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Shirley You Can't Be Serious podcast. We are back for part two of our Dirty Dancing versus Saturday Night Fever escapade, movie versus movie, album versus album. Man, the music on this stuff is amazing. The music is great. The movies are great. The characters are great. It's iconic. Two of the most iconic musical movies of the decades. Yeah. Now, we're going to be talking about Saturday Night Fever, Uh which has reached its 45th anniversary, Mm -hmm. and Dirty Dancing which has reached its 35th anniversary. Yep. Movie to movie. We're trying not to talk music this time around. Then we'll compare soundtrack to soundtrack where we'll dive into the music. But I want you to know that talking about these movies is much more than just talking. you got to feel it. It's a heartbeat. Boom, boom. Boom, boom. Jason, <laughs> you'd have your hand on my chest. <laughs> <laughs> Watch the hair. Watch the hair. <laughs> All right, everybody, welcome back. We're so glad to have you. Be sure, and at this point, if you can, hit the follow button, hit the subscribe button. We have a Patreon page where if you are financially able to give us a month donation, we would love to have it. You can see that at patreon.com slash Shirley Podcast. You can donate as little as five bucks a month on up, and we give you special prizes when you do. But if you're not able to do that, just hitting the five-star button, hitting the follow button, and submitting a review are super helpful in getting us out there and in front of other people. And then, of course, if you just tell other people about it, that's great, too. But if in your review you mentioned that you carried the watermelon or that you have (laughs) a night fever, then we will put you in a contest for special prize get to be determined. That is a challenge right there. <laughs> we did that for our Toto and Duran Duran episode, and we had some people meet that challenge. They went from the Serengeti Plain up to the top of Mount Kilimanjaro. Let me read you one of these, okay? Okay. Okay, so we received one of these reviews from Sean Niehoff. This was from the Toto and Duran Duran episodes we just got done doing. I love Sean Niehoff. He's on our Facebook page all of the time. Super fan. We hear Great from guy. him a lot. Great yeah. guy. Thanks, Sean. We appreciate you. Here's what he had to say. It's titled, The Best. Great podcast. I love pop culture, and these guys hit the best of the best of movies and music. Keep up the good work. This podcast is more explosive than Kilimanjaro. (laughs) I highly recommend. You will not be disappointed, and I have been promoting this podcast to other friends. Sean, we cannot tell you how much we appreciate that. I love it. Love it. Love it. I hope you enjoy this episode, and thank you for referring us out. Thanks, Sean. Appreciate you, buddy. Take the challenge. Five-star review. Hashtag Night Fever. Hashtag Carry the Watermelons. What are we, like, teenagers? You don't have to put a hashtag. Just say the word, man. Just say the word. I thought hashtag was, like, the thing. (laughs) You don't even know what a hashtag is. (laughs) All right, so let's dive back into the movies Saturday Night Fever and Dirty Dancing. All right, so we just finished up our last episode with casting. Now we're into production. (laughs) 
And so with Saturday Night Fever, in addition to not having the completed script and just now getting the actors and a very new director and a music style that was going out, they had another problem. New York City knew who John Travolta was and they wanted to see him. <laughs> yeah, this is incredible. So the first day of shooting, they're shooting in Brooklyn. And all of a sudden, word gets out that Vinny Barbarino is out on the street filming a movie. And they had thousands upon thousands of people show up. Right. It ruined the first day. They had to go home at lunchtime. Yeah, they couldn't film a scene where there weren't hordes of people in the background messing up the scene. Yeah. They went home at lunch. He's like, forget this. We'll start over. Yeah. They had to come out with fake call sheets. Yeah. We're going to be here when we're really here. <laughs> And they had to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning and shoot before people were up and around. Yeah, yeah. They It was all very bait and switch and sneaking around just to get the scenes that they needed to avoid the fan base that John Travolta had developed at that point. Yeah, it's really cool. Uh, one of the things I thought was interesting about the development of this movie, yeah. they, had to, they were trying to find the tone, and the movie that they were trying to sort of remake was Rebel Without a Cause. Yeah, I can see that. Now then, I have a question for you. Yes, sir. Sidebar. Okay. Is Urban Cowboy a remake of Saturday Night Fever, except countrified? It is kind of a countrified version, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, because there's dancing and sex and dishonest nastiness all over the place. <laughs> yeah, it could be. Talk amongst yourselves. Yeah. Urban Cowboy, modern remake. Topic for a discussion. Hit us up on Facebook. What do you think? Is Urban Cowboy just the countrified version of Saturday Night Fever? <laughs> hey, I've got something for you. This is a really cool tidbit I, I found. Okay? okay. Yeah. So John Badham, who became the second director and ultimately the director of Saturday yeah. Night Fever. So he's a Birmingham, Alabama guy. Okay. Okay. And we've got a couple of buddies of ours that we've interacted with. One of them is Van Allen Plexico. He's a, an Alabama guy. Uh-huh. And David Wright lived in Birmingham, Alabama for a long time. Okay. So I texted him. I'm like, hey, Dave, you, got, you know who John Badham is? He said, oh, yeah, he's he's a huge Birmingham guy. Uh-huh. And he ultimately did War Games. Remember the War, oh, the yeah, war yeah, Games? Oh, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. 83. So here's the tidbit that I that I read, okay? Yeah. So the multicolored dance floor that is hugely famous, it's on the album cover, it's on the movie cover. It's iconic. Yeah. Well, that wasn't in the Odyssey. Oh. They got that from a, a place called The Club in Birmingham, Alabama. What? Does that match up Birmingham, with Birmingham, Alabama? Yeah. Not Birmingham in England where no, Duran Duran no, 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 is no. from. Birmingham, Alabama is responsible for the dance floor in the New York City discotheque. Yeah. That's crazy. But the, like, I think after this, everybody probably started emulating that, trying to get that same light up floor. So I called him. I said, hey, listen, are you familiar with the club uh-huh. in Birmingham? He's like, oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Everybody knows the club. Wow. It's like this fancy country club like place. Wow. That's where they got the multicolored dance floor. Fantastic. How about that? Great. So we mentioned before in our last episode that John Travolta had fallen in love with this girl named Diana Highland. Yes. When he was making the first TV movie that he made, which was Boy in the Bubble. And they were together. They were close. And she was the one who had encouraged him to go make this movie, even though at the time she was battling breast cancer. Yes. And so while he's filming the movie, he gets a phone call. They say, she's only got a couple days left. You need to get out here. And so he has to leave the movie in the middle of the movie, has to leave, go to be with her, watch her die, 
go to our funeral, and then go back and continue to film this movie. Wow. And they said they'd see him on set, and he would just be over in a corner and quiet and maybe tearful and looking away in a despondent way. And they're like, uh, John, time for your scene. And he would pop up, go do the scene, nail it, and then go back and sit down and contemplate life. Wow. Yeah. All right, I got a couple of tidbits for you. Okay. All right. Yeah. I, these I found fascinating, Okay. So, one of the very first times ever in history, you have the use of the Steadicam. Okay. This guy named Garrett Brown, who would ultimately win a 1978 Oscar for his invention. Uh-huh. He came up with this camera stabilizing device yeah. that allowed him to carry it, and it looked smooth on film. We've talked about him before. I'm not, I'm not remembering what episode, but I know that we've talked about Garrett Brown and the Steadicam before. You know what else was the first time to appear in this movie? No. The term job. <laughs> As in, okay, just give me a... Yes. Oh, my God. Yes. We're going to break down a few of the scenes in this movie, but that's okay, so, the first time ever. So talk, talking about the Steadicam. Yes. The opening scene of this movie is iconic. It's yeah. him walking along the sidewalk. You know, he looks like he's ready to go to the club, but we figure out later, he's like... What's he? Why is he carrying a paint can? I know. But you have this ultra cool, ultra well dressed guy walking with a paint can, checking out the girls, and it's all to the music, staying alive. And he's got these amazing shoes, right? He does have amazing shoes. So there was a rumor that went around for a long time that those were not John Travolta's feet. Uh-huh. Now, if you look, at some point, you can see it pans up from his shoes up to his face. So at least part of it has to be his feet. And that was the reason that they invented that Steadicam, in addition to the dance scenes, of course, is that they wanted to be able to go from foot to face. You can't, you, you don't want to cut away because you want to see the rhythm of the walk and you want to see the beautiful man, right? Yeah, that's right. And so that's how he invented this Steadicam, is to put together this thing that could go backwards and raise up in a smooth transition the whole way. So John Travolta's like, finally, I'm going to address these rumors. Those were my feet. Those were not a stand-in's feet. Not at all, except for one scene. Yes. And the one scene is the very first time, you haven't even seen his face yet, he walks up next to the shoe store, sees the shoes in the window, lifts his own foot up. That was the stand-in. And John Travolta was like, when I saw the movie and I saw that and saw him kind of bounce up and down, like... No balance. I would not have done that. (laughs) Yeah. I, to me, it was he was like dancing to the rhythm of the music in his head or whatever. But yeah, John Travolta was unhappy with the one stunt double foot that he had. <laughs> that guy's foot pissed him off. So here's what I found interesting, okay? The Bee Gees weren't involved until post-production. Right. Okay? The songs that they're dancing to, yeah, it's like Boss Skaggs, right? Yeah. So when Tony and Annette are in the dance studio and they're dancing to the song they weren't actually dancing to more than a woman they were dancing to a song called lowdown by boz skaggs yep and i texted you this week right you know who wrote that song i do because you texted it to me why don't you tell me boz skaggs and david page that's right of toto and who was playing on it steve picaro and david hungate of toto once again toto making their stamp so the boz skaggs song did not end up in the movie Right. But they had done this, they had done a dance scene to this Boscak song. Yes. So there's a composer for this movie, Beyond the Bee Gees. There's a guy named David Shire. You hear the classical pieces 
that are to the disco sound. Right. He's the guy that would put that stuff in. And so whenever they had that scene that they thought they had music to that they no longer did, he was the one that was charged with composing music that would fit the scene to the rhythm of the Boskag song. Okay, here's something that I heard and I don't quite understand. But when they took the Bee Gees music and they're going to plug and play, as they do, the dancing and the music didn't match up perfectly. And so they had to adjust some of the cuts to make it work. Yeah. It seems to me when you hit exactly on the same beat, it's just plug and play, but it wasn't plug and play. Yeah, things were much less computerized back then. They thought they were in trouble. Yeah. So before I leave the Boss Gags thing, yeah. okay, he turned down the opportunity to have Lowdown on the soundtrack. Yep. They were actually hoping to put it in another disco movie that ultimately didn't pan out. Right. Estimated costing $5 million. What? $5 million bucks. Is what he could have made had he left it in there? If it, if it had been on the soundtrack. Yep. Wow. We're going to get in the soundtrack next week, but gosh, it was the biggest selling soundtrack of all time until The Bodyguard overtook it in 92. Mm-hmm. But it was the best selling album of all time until thriller overtook it wow one of the things i want to talk about is the dancing scene so john travolta we talked about how he would work three hours a day i cracked up laughing i can't dance but john travolta said i would dance for three hours and i'd run two miles a day (laughs) i'm like well the three hours is impressive two miles not so much (laughs) he lost 20 pounds yeah and actually when you look at his audition tape you can tell he he lost he yeah. trimmed up right yeah. he slimmed up so he goes to watch the premiere and when he watches it he's like where's my dancing scene I work for nine months dancing every single day and it's all close ups you can't see my feet so he got really mad Yeah. he's like this is bull crap yep. I worked freaking hard and I, you can't see my feet are you kidding me nobody's gonna buy this so he called the producer called Robert Stigman mm-hmm. and Robert Stigman said listen here's the deal I will let you choose which scenes you want and which, which angles you want the director's in the editing room right now you know more about this than I do. Go to the editing room, sit down with them, and choose your scenes. So essentially, he gave him final approval on all the scenes. Yeah. So when he shows up in the editing room, the director is like, say what? You're going to tell me what to put in this movie? Yeah. So they're really mad. Yeah. John Travolta says, look, I'm not going to take up your time. Here's what I'm going to tell you. I want full body scene. I want head to toe coverage until I point the finger. Then you can go close up. Everything else, I want to see everything on the dance floor. That's the difference. Yeah. We believe he can dance because we can see it. The scene would have lost all meaning had it been in a close-up the entire time. John Travolta was 100% right. Stay on the main shot until I point and move. Go to a medium shot for that. And then go back to the main back shot. To, yep. That's all you have to do. Not hard. I thought it was interesting. He So he's shooting Greece at the time they're editing this, right? Mm-hmm. He invites the Greece people with him. Oh, okay. And that's when he's sitting there and he's like, this is bullcrap. You guys don't understand. I've been dancing for nine months. Yeah. And they're like, this is great. And he's like, I'm freaking getting a piece of somebody tomorrow. Right. Robert Stigman also produced Grease, by the way. Is that right? Yeah. I did not know that. That's why freaking the Bee Gees are on the Grease soundtrack. Of course. It makes sense now. It all makes sense. Wow. Okay. I got some. This cracked me up. All right. Uh So the iconic pose of John Travolta in the white suit with chest out and the one arm pointed in the air, right? Yes. Yep. It's on the freaking soundtrack. It's on the movie cover. It was on posters. It Iconic. was everywhere. Yeah. You know what I'm talking movie. about? Yeah. It's not in the movie. It's not in the movie. I kept waiting for that. I'm like, <laughs> you where's the scene from Airplane? <laughs> exactly. I was just getting ready to say, you know what movie it is in? Airplane. Yep. But that finger pointing thing, Yeah. this happened at the end of a 14-hour day 
And the photographer said to John Travolta, he's like, okay, I need a couple of pictures. He's like, dude, I'm, I'm so tired. I just want to go home and go to bed. And he's like, no, 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 just a few more minutes. Let's just take some pictures while you're all dressed up and stuff. So he picture, 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 picture. He's like, all right, all right. Do you have anything else that you can do? He's like, well, how about this? <laughs> and he thought, next thing you know, that pose is everywhere. And he's like, I can't believe that's the one that they chose. Yeah. Incredible, right? Yep. Let's talk about the bridge scene for a second. Okay. Let's bring the music and the lights down a little bit, shall we? Okay. Oh, my gosh. I mean, this movie's kind of a bummer, right? Kind of. Kind of a bummer. Kind of a bummer. Uh, yes, yes. And the Holocaust, also kind of a bummer. <laughs> God. So, for whatever reason, these morons decide to pull the car over on the bridge, and they're dancing around on the girders, and they're taking their lives in their own hand. But, while they were shooting, Donna Pesco is watching them, and there's that scene where it's kind of a fake fall, like they all jump, and like, ah! Yeah. And she's like, ah! She freaks out. They played a trick on her. She thought they had actually fallen off. Oh, my. Her reaction is... Genuine. Legit. Wow. Because it's terrified. When she's like, you beep! That was real. That wasn't scripted. Nice. Get dig it. I do bet you good. <laughs> That's not cool. No, it's not cool. That but is freaking not cool. Yeah. I thought you were going to talk about the next bridge scene where he does actually fall. Right after she gets gang raped in the back seat of the car. <laughs> <sighs> what in the world is going on at the end of Saturday Night Fever? It's like they kiss you. And then they kick you in the nuts. Yeah. I don't even know that I'd call it a good kiss. Right. Right? It's like it's like they showed you a pretty picture, and then they kick you in the nuts. <laughs> That's true. And then they kicked you in the nuts again. They kind of build up. I mean, what... We're kind of getting in judgment here. Well, I don't care. We're talking about the movie. We're talking about how it came out. Keep going. So, you've got this seemingly horrible human being, right? Yes. He's racist. He's sexist. <laughs> He is a crap employee. I mean, he's he cares about nothing but himself, right? Yes. And the only thing he's good at is dancing. Yes. And he only uses that as a way to show off and to get chicks. Yes. I mean, that's it. Yes. And so you think, oh, hey, he's going to win the dance competition at the end, and it's going to be redeeming, except, yeah, he wins it, but then he gives the prize away and says it's not real, and then goes tries to rape a girl in the back that's supposed to be the love interest. What the heck? <laughs> I'm totally with you, man, because I'm watching, I'm like, hey, they won. And they steal every ounce of joy out of that victory Ugh. because he's acting like a total jerk after they won. I mean, if the message is supposed to be, hey, guys, if you're about the me generation and the, the me decade of the 70s, this is what a douchebag you look like, then they succeeded. I cannot figure out how this is Gene Siskel's favorite movie of I, all time. I can't either. I can't either. Imagine the movie The Karate Kid. Daniel LaRusso kicks Johnny Lawrence in the face to win the Hill Valley Karate Championships. And then he turns... Mixing in- movies. <laughs> <laughs> and then he turns into a brat at the end and breaks his trophy and says, this is stupid, I quit. And, and then... Has a friend go kill himself and then treats the one redeeming character in the whole movie like crap until she gives herself up after taking numerous drugs and then gets raped. Uh, it's just... <sighs> this movie is profane. It is racist. It is sexist. It's homophobic. It, it is... It's just bad all over the place. Obviously, we <laughs> you can see how we feel about the movie. We, we kind of tipped our hand a little early on this, but it's iconic. And I can't figure out 
how it's iconic other than, and this is why I said this on the last episode, the music. And it captured a moment in time. It really did. Yeah. And I'm with you. The music is so massive mm-hmm. to the success of this movie. Yeah. Except Gene Siskel. This is his all-time favorite movie? He bought the suit. He bought the white point it cost suit. cost him $145,000. I for the suit. I don't get it. It is iconic. But and I are you, you had to maybe you had to be in New York City in the 70s to really But I mean it's, it was worldwide. I don't <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Keep hey, going. Okay. Listen to this. The part where Annette comes up to Tony mm-hmm. and says, "Guess what? Good news. Handful of condoms." Oh yeah, yeah. And you think, "This poor girl is so desperate, so lonely." And then Tony just crushes her. Uh-huh. You are not even worthy to consider. I mean, it's horrible. I, I just feel terrible for this girl the entire... And then she's gang raped in the back of the car while they're driving around. It's... Oh, my gosh. Okay. And then you have the l- ridiculous bridge scene where... The other guy who you at least feel sorry for... He's kind of the runt of the group. Yeah. And he's a coward and he gets fed up with nobody listening or caring about him. And the freaking... The fight scene. They go to this... They wreck the car. They go through this mess. I'm like, well, at least they stand up for their buddy. And then they go and see the buddy. He's like, well, yeah, it might have been. That. They're like, what do you mean might have been? He's like, well, that's what I said. I thought it was them. You said that you thought it was them. And it's like, yeah, but I meant like I thought. I wasn't sure. What? They stole all the joy from that scene as well. Every time there was some kind of redeeming thing going on, they yanked the rug right out, out from under you. Okay. Okay. I'm glad that you feel that way. <laughs> Have you ever seen the movie Staying Alive? I have. I don't recall it. It's It's been 30 years ago. Entertainment Weekly named it the worst sequel of all time. Yeah. We're getting ready to do Superman 4 this summer. Yeah. And Jaws 4. Yeah. We, we might. talked about Crystal Skull. <laughs> we might have something to say about that. Right. The gang fight, the gang rape, the bridge death. And then what's what's the end of the movie? What is the end? Like wh- he watches his friend kill himself and his long night of self-reflection makes him realize he needs to go back to the girl that he tried to rape and see <laughs> if he can move into the city with her. That's his big aha moment. Are you kidding me? She barely lets him in the room, and I don't I don't blame her. I'd been like, screw you. Yeah, and she hugs him at the end. Uh, it's so bizarre. All right. Before we move on, let's go back to Dirty Dancing. Yes. Okay. I want to talk about the filming locations of Dirty Dancing really quick. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Because it's supposed to be the Catskills in New York. Yeah. They actually filmed it mostly in North Carolina and Virginia. Yep. It's kind of right on the edge of both states. Yeah. They found a hotel in both of the places that was the right fit, but obviously they're not the same style. They're in two different states. So do you know what their magic ingredient was for making you feel like you're in the same place? No. What? The posts and the lights. If you'll notice when you watch the movie, people who are listening to this podcast, check it out the next time you watch the film. There are white posts with little lamps on top of them all over the place. 
Okay. All they did was put them up in Virginia. When they packed up and left, they took them. And even though it was a completely different place, you felt like it was the same place because it had the same posts and lamps. That's fascinating. Kicks them over, he kicks it over at one point. Kicks over the post and the lamp so that he can break through the window of the That's car. Right. Remember? Yeah, I do. That was the key to making them appear to be the same location. That's interesting. Yeah. They did a good job with that. Yeah. Now that scene you're right there you're referring to? Yeah. Is stupid. <laughs> Because it's like, okay, it's raining. Patrick Swayze is like, let's get out of here. Yeah. He goes to his car and he's like, crap, I locked my keys in the car. Yeah. And I, if to, when I first watch it, I'm like, I think he's stealing this car. I don't think this car belongs to him. Uh-uh. But he gets pissed and he takes his post and he smashes the window. Yeah. Maybe, uh, maybe check your pockets. Maybe <laughs> you got a replacement key instead of bashing out the window. A little. Well, I mean, if you see the keys in there, they're definitely in there. But yeah, I mean, get a coat hanger. I mean, it's, this we're talking right. about a 50s car. It wasn't like it had theft prevention on it. Get a coat hanger, pull the lock up, go ahead. I've locked my keys in my car many times. How many times have you smashed the window out? Zero. All right. <laughs> Okay, so here's the thing about the location I want to talk about, okay? So, Lake Lure, North Carolina. The Mountain Lake Hotel was very near Pembroke, Virginia, okay? So, the lake, the beautiful lake setting of Dirty Dancing, this is a place I want to go. I want to go and fish and golf and hang out. I don't really want to dance, but I want to go. This place looks gorgeous and beautiful, okay? So, ever since 2003, that lake has been dry. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I saw that it had completely dried up. It's like heartbreaking, right? Yeah. It's something natural about this lake. It goes away, and then it comes back. What? It goes away, and it comes back. I'm not a geologist, but here's the thing. I saw... (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, keep going. (laughs) I'm not a geologist. I'm not a geologist. (laughs) But I do have an opinion. Okay. (laughs) I can't wait. Uh, I'm very happy to report... The lake is coming back. Oh, wow. I saw a video of a girl who had visited during the pandemic last summer. Yeah. And it's not what it was, but the lake is coming back. Wow. It's restoring. That's awesome. So, how so about that? 19 years later. Yeah, it's it's coming That's back. so crazy. I wonder how that works. I don't Maybe I, we should ask a geologist. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of that lake, yeah. there's a famous scene in the movie where they're working on the lift. Yeah. Okay. So they they started filming Dirty Dancing September 5th, 1986. Yep. Okay. They wrapped production in like Octo- like October 28th. Well, this is one of the last scenes shot in the movie. In fact, it was cold. The weather was cold and the water was cold. Yeah. And in fact, if you look, uh, Jennifer Grey's lips are actually blue. I wasn't looking at her lips, but I could still tell it was cold. <laughs> <laughs> Winner! (laughs) That scene was, of course, shot in that lake that has eventually gone away. And there were indications that, yes, she was cold. Yeah. So, on that topic, during the lovemaking scenes, she did have nudity in those scenes. This blows me away. Keep going. So, she comes back later on and says, do we really need the nude scenes in there? Is there any way that we can get rid of those? And Who's she? Jennifer? Jennifer Grey. Yeah. Okay. And the producer is like, um, well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, let's let's talk to Emil about it and let's see what he thinks. And Emil is like, I think it might be better without them. Because without the nude scenes, she maintains that purity, that youth, 
I mean, obviously, this is a girl who is becoming a woman. Yes. But I think that to have that, to have the nude scenes in the lovemaking part of the movie would have taken away from it. And, and I think it was the perfect choice to take it out. I 100% agree with you. Yeah. Baby is supposed to be 17. The character's age is 17. Yeah. When you remove the nudity, it, it does allow that sort of innocence to maintain. Mm-hmm. You do kind of see her bare back. You can tell that they've had sex. They, you can tell she has not remained pure, but it does allow for that kind of It's more. Feel. It's more of a beautiful lovemaking thing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. And I love the fact, unlike Saturday Night Fever, where all those guys care about it, getting laid the entire time, Johnny is not really interested in that. Hmm. It just kind of, their relationship develops and goes to the next level, and it just happens, yeah. rather than chasing her the whole movie. Yeah. So I think it's interesting that Johnny's character and Penny's character had a relationship they have sort of since outgrown. Yeah. One of the things we need to talk about, the fact that Penny gets pregnant. Yeah. By Robbie. Yeah. Do you know that almost 40% of the people who viewed this when they came out of the movie theater did not realize that there was a subplot involving abortion? It's impressive and important because they were targeting, you know, 14-year-old girls. Sure. Like that was that was the target demographic for this movie, right? Yep. So it got an R rating. Yeah. And they're like, crap, that just ruins right. everything. And so Linda Gottlieb called up her friend, was the MPAA director. Okay. And she's like, What needs to go? Listen, if I take out two f***s and three f***s, we give me a PG rating. Yeah. And yeah. he's like, Yeah, you can do that. And so they took it out. And they had, I guess, taken out the nudity, so that's not a problem either. Although in the 80s, nudity was less of a problem than F-bombs. Right. But the abortion part was still a problem because the company that was sponsoring the movie, the distribution of the movie, was Clearasil. A product for teenagers. A pimple product for teenagers. <laughs> they were going to put a Clearasil bottle picture on every poster. Really? Yes. And so then Clearasil watches the movie and they're like, wait a minute, wait, wait the abortion? What, what, what? Yeah. All right. And so they contact the producers, one of which is the woman who wrote the movie, and they say, can you take out the abortion part and she says if the abortion is gone there's no reason for her to dance with johnny there's no reason for her to have this close contact with him all the time there's no reason you lose the entire thing if you take that out Uh and they're like yeah i guess so so they lost clearasil as as a sponsor wow cynthia rhodes says at some point as they're filming, as they're in production, goes to Eleanor Bergstein and says, I feel like my character needs to explain why what happened happened. Okay. And Eleanor says, I think you're right. And goes and writes the scene. That was Cynthia Rhodes' idea that she should explain, hey, here's what happened and here's why it happened. Thought I was in love. Yeah. Yeah. Robbie's such a turd. He is a total turd. I hate Robbie. Well. Robbie could hang out with the guys from Saturday Night Fever. (laughs) He really can. (laughs) So the abortion is vital to the plot of the movie yeah. because if there's no abortion, there's no reason for Penny to miss the dance and therefore Jennifer Grey doesn't have to step in. I get all that. What I don't get is, could you not reschedule for a different day? If it's that important, I mean, they talk about how they have to do this dance so they can have the money and all that is, a, I mean, it's a back alley doctor, I get it, but... It's illegal at that point. Well, that's true. So to find the guy that's going to do it, that's going to be in the neighborhood is probably pretty tricky. That's true. Okay, so this movie starts off with not Baby, but it's the opening credits, and it's black and white footage of people dirty dancing. Right. 
right? It gives it away right out of the gate. Hey, here's what Dirty Dancing's gonna be. And it seems like maybe that would be something that you wanted to save until later. But because they had this target audience of pre-teenagers or teenagers that they w were hoping to get, they put that scene first to kind of give them, hey, a heads up. Hey, here's what's gonna be coming later on. The Dirty Dancing part. Right. And then we're gonna move from that into the real opening scene of the movie where she narrates a little bit as she's reading this book. Interesting, okay. The name of the book is the plight of the peasant. Okay. When I listened to the commentary, Eleanor Bergstein made a point of pointing that out okay. and said nothing else about it. There's no such book. It is a book that appears to have been made just for the movie, but for some reason, she wanted to point it out and then not explain it. I don't get it. There is no book called Plight of the Peasant. Now, this movie is very much about classes and the separation between them, and so maybe that plays into it a little bit, but it's just weird to me that not only are they going to put a prop-titled book in there, but she's going to point it out in the commentary and then not explain it. I don't get it. That is weird. Yeah. Let's talk about the dirty dancing scene. We can't really talk about dirty dancing without talking about the dirty dancing scene. Well, one thing I, I do want to note, before we get to that, the music changes, right? When you hit that scene, you've got a different kind of music, a different style of music than you had leading up to that scene. Yeah. This was deliberate. She wanted clean music up until that point, and then when she it hits the dirty music, that is where Baby finds her rhythm. Okay. She's gone on a walk. Uh -huh. She's wandered into the area where the staff stays. Yep. Clearly, they're having a party. She There's carried a, a watermelon. The guys are carrying, trying to carry three gigantic watermelons, yeah. so she helps him out. She has crossed over, right? She crosses that little, the threshold. She crosses the threshold. Yeah. That staircase, by the way, is in North Carolina. Okay. On private property now, in case you wanted to go see it. Oh, wow. Okay. I have special permission to go there. But when she enters, it's like Dorothy going to Oz. It is. You open the door. Her eyes are opened. What is going on here? Dirty dancing and yeah. they're having a blast yeah and all that crappy little waltzing and stuff that i've been doing with my parents and stuff i don't want to do that i want to do this so the scene that dirty dancing scene where she she pops in and it's like the wizard of oz doors opening yes they only had three days to shoot that scene and after shooting for two days they watch the footage eleanor bergstein watches the footage and she's like this is the most important scene in the movie and they didn't get it okay they didn't get it right okay and so they've only got one day left they don't have enough money to keep on going like there's she thinks it's ruined like the movie is ruined she stays up the entire night crying she gets up the next morning has her assistant help her like put ice on her eyes so they don't seem all red she goes in and emil immediately is like okay what's wrong what's yeah. what's going on what's happened and she's like i just we didn't get it we didn't it's not right it doesn't wow me it doesn't pop like it needs to pop and emil says give me the day and i will make it and it was that last day it was that third day okay took those dancers and said yep okay we're gonna do this we're gonna shoot it differently and that's what we get and that's the scene that makes that crucial part of the movie happen absolutely it has to change baby's life right yeah she's got to see it She's in Oz. Now she's changed forever. Forever. Yeah. Yes. All right, D, let's take a quick break and just hear from our friends at Vintage Video Pod. On the Vintage Video Podcast, we'll be reviewing every single wide release of the 1980s in chronological order. Over 250 episodes to enjoy and thousands more to come. John enters the store now to order another can of ether. I picture him outside like Homer with the gas hall. <laughs> one for you, one for me. I also like to think about that the kids renew their vow not to talk about the murder by, by murdering someone. <laughs> 
<laughs> they're taking a blood <laughs> oath with someone else's blood. This stuff is seven times more powerful than uranium. And yeah. they, they open up the vault that it's contained in, not wearing any kind of protective nope. gear. Yeah. And it's wooden crates. Wooden crates. It's like the guys in Chernobyl picking up the graphite rocks yeah. and going, eh, because there's rocks. Hugging the elephant foot. <laughs> just like, oh, this thing's smooth. It's so warm. He turns to dial the number from the classified ad without even thinking about the numbers. <laughs> we know this because we can hear his thoughts and he's talking about how AJ was right that ninjas are misdirecting him. They're misdirecting him. I really wish that he'd turn to the phone and been like, six, six, five. Vintage video. We're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. Love it. Definitely go subscribe to that podcast. They're great fun. They do kind of what we do over there. Check them out. Vintage Video Pod. There were three different types of music and therefore three different types of dance that they used. You had the dirty dancing dancing that what that represented the low class, the the peasants, if you will. Sure. And then you had the kind of foxtrot of all the old people up in the gazebo that was being led by Penny. Right. And that was the rich class music. Yep. And then you had the, the tango scene between Johnny and Penny in front of everybody else. And that was kind of the, we're trying to make it. You know, we're trying to get out of one class and into another class, and we're driven and passionate. And that's those are your three classes of dance. That seems interesting to me because Johnny and Penny are killing it, yeah. and Mr. Kellerman gives them the dirty look. They have to knock it off. Yeah, they have to slow it down and start dancing with the other folks. And here, I'm going to point this out. We didn't mention last time when we were talking about casting, Max Kellerman, the yes. owner of the hotel, is played by Jack Weston. Yes. And Eleanor is, you know, before they've started production, Eleanor is walking by him and he's running over his lines and he's doing it in this kind of weird sing-songy voice and trying to find the character, you know. And she stops and she says, um, Jack, Max is the king of the hotel. The hotel is his kingdom and he is the king. And so Jack is like, okay, had a bow tie on. He leaves. He comes back. No bow tie. He's got a straight tie now. Yes. The bow tie made me look too comic. I want the straight tie. And if you watch it, think if you like look at this guy and you say that guy thinks he's the king, you're right. That's exactly what's going on. That's that's great, man. His son Neil Kellerman is the character. Lonnie Price is the guy who plays this character. So here's my story here. Okay. After they had come out with the movie. It's playing in various theaters. They're getting a feel for how it's doing. And Eleanor talks to Lonnie on the phone. And she's like, so, you know, what other theaters have you seen it in since we saw it together? And he's like, oh, I haven't gone to see it anywhere else. And she's like, oh, you should. There are different reactions for different audiences. You should definitely go see it. And so about a week later, she calls him up. She's like, so did you go and see it in another theater? And he's like, "Uh, yeah, I did. And she's like, well, what's wrong? He says, well... There were these girls that were sitting in front of me, and whenever I I had my line, there's just some things you don't want to see, the girl in front of me yelled, Yeah, I like your face! (laughs) (laughs) Poor guy. Poor Lonnie Price. (laughs) Okay, I want to talk about the line, Nobody puts baby in a corner. Okay. Nobody puts baby in a corner. That line, Patrick Swayze dug his heels in and said, I am not freaking saying that. It's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. And it's not as though Eleanor Bergstein was tied to the line either. She was like, "Mm, it's just the line, you know, no big deal. It's interesting to me because it is so iconic. It's maybe, it's maybe more famous than the movie itself. You, people will know you, nobody puts baby in the corner and not know that it comes from Dirty Dancing. And Patrick Swayze is like, I'm not freaking saying this. It's stupid. It doesn't make any sense either. She's not really in a corner. She's next to a pillar. She's sitting at the table with her family. (laughs) Nobody puts baby at a table with her parents. I 
Yeah, I my only thought is that because it seems slightly out of character, and also because it's like him kind of rescuing her back. I mean, when the when they part ways, you know, and he drives off on the gravel road and kicks up those rocks, you think. The movie might be over, right? Right. This is just one of those movies where she had a summer experience and grew as a woman and that's it. Right. That comeback scene is like, oh, wow, yes. we got to talk about that scene. Okay. The finale of Dirty Dancing. Yep. When Patrick Swayze comes back, storms the stage and says, I always get the last dance of the summer. He's already been fired. Get out of here. See ya. Yeah. He says, nope, I'm coming back. It's almost like the end of Officer and a Gentleman. Yeah. He kicks in the door. I'm here to get my woman and do <laughs> and do our dance, right? Right. And I'm sorry. I don't care how masculine you are. You are soul dead if the lift doesn't make you a little bit misty where you're like, oh, heck yeah. It's freaking awesome. Yeah, absolutely. So they come back. He shows up. He cues the guy with the record. All the other dancers start dancing in line. He does this massive jump off the stage. Of course, the song is incredible. Yeah. I've had the time of my life. Yeah. And the lift scene that's so famous, Yeah. Jennifer Grace said, they did it one time, and she hasn't done it since. It is a way to bring it home like I wanted to happen in Saturday Night Fever that I did not. I got kicked in the nuts. I told you, my ninth grade girlfriend would have married me on the spot if I could have pulled off the lift, right? Yep. And the song's great, and everybody's dancing. Kelly Bishop, who plays her mother, says, yeah. I think she gets that from me. Yeah. That's a nod to her, because she was in the original cast of The Chorus Line. Yeah, she's a dancer. She's a dancer. Yeah. We've already said, I mean, women just love this movie because it's from a woman's point of view, yeah. and Johnny takes the time to teach her how to dance and brings her into his world and rescues her from the safety of her parents. And this movie just appeals across the board to women. Yeah, It yeah. appeals to me. I love it. So, of course, you see the same dirty dancers all the time, right? Yes. And these are all actors who didn't know each other before they came to the set and started pumping and grinding on each other like <laughs> they knew each other a long time. So they, to make the girls more comfortable, they told all of the guy dancers, they're like, listen, um, here's the rule. You can't make any kind of phone calls or contacts with any of these girls until six months after the movie. Like, that's the rule. Okay. Well, there's no freaking way they can enforce that rule. <laughs> I mean, what? Do you, I mean, you've, they're already there. They've right. already been hired. What are you going to do? Right. Get the money back? No, it's it's not going to happen, right? She says, so then they start dancing. They're shooting all these scenes. And at some point, the guys come back up to her and they're like, okay, so do you mean six months from when the film wraps or f- six months from when the movie is released? She's like, they're so sweet. They're trying to do exactly what I said, but they definitely wanted to call those girls. It's kind of like when the camp counselor tells you not to go over to the girls area at summer camp. Yeah, I'm not sure that everybody uh, followed the rules, but at least they tried. Yeah. Okay. So two interesting little cameos that happen in Dirty Dancing. Okay. Okay. Eleanor Bergstein, the writer. Yes. You can see her for just a split second, just as Baby comes running up to get Johnny. He's dancing with this woman. The woman that he's dancing with is Eleanor Bergstein. When they filmed it, the dancing part was much longer and she had much more time on film. But when they started editing, she gets a call from Emil and he's like, listen, I'm really sorry and I won't do it if you don't want me to, but we really need to just get rid of this part of the scene. You need to get it. She's like, do what you need to do. 
do what you need to do. Uh But then whenever they would go to the movie afterwards, every time that scene came up and she was with him, he would go, who is that wonderful woman? Why can't we see more of her? (laughs) (laughs) That's good. Yeah. You know, she wanted to hire Dr. Ruth Westheimer to play a part in this movie. That would have been funny. Dr. Ruth. Dr. Ruth. Yes. The character that she wanted her to play was Mrs. Schumacher, the thief. Okay. And Dr. Ruth was like, what? She's a thief? Yeah. No, I cannot. Yeah, that's funny. (laughs) That's funny. Let's flip back to Saturday Night Fever and talk reception. So we talked about how the 70s were depressing, really, until disco showed up, right? Disco reminds people that Saturday night is for having fun. Yeah. Well, Paramount knew that they had good music, but they didn't believe in this project at all, okay? Mm -hmm. And to say that they didn't believe in it is an understatement, okay? okay? We talked about how this movie has profanity, it has racism, it has rape, it has drugs, and there was also that anti-disco sentiment out there, right? Disco sucks. Yeah. Well, when they go to the premiere, they have it at the Man Chinese Theater. So at the premiere, you had Penny Marshall and Cindy Williams. Laverne and Shirley. Laverne and Shirley. Shamil Schmackel. You had John Ritter uh-huh. and Suzanne Summers. Yep. You had Hugh Hefner. Okay. You had Peter Frampton. Yeah. And of course, Ernest Borgnine. Well, sure. Why not? He, I mean, he was about to be Vito Corleone. Except that he wasn't. Except that he didn't get that part. Right. Anyway, it was just fun. Diana Shore was there interviewing John Travolta. It was a very 70s event. It uh-huh. was a lot of fun to see these old celebrities. The movie made more than $285 million wow. and revitalized disco. Yeah. It was a pop culture nuclear, nuclear bomb. Blast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> was waiting for it. (laughs) It was. I mean, it's not an exaggeration. And it brought disco right back front and center for the next few years. Yeah, absolutely. Until Disco Sucks Night at the Chicago White Sox game in 79. Death of Disco. And then the soundtrack that comes with it was hugely, immensely popular. Yep. I was telling you, and I don't want to give too much away because we'll talk about the soundtrack next week, but it's some of the earliest songs I remember from my childhood. Yeah. They didn't put Disco Duck on there. Apparently at one (laughs) scene he danced to Disco Duck, but they didn't put it on. There's a Disco Star Wars song. Yeah. The John Williams Star Wars theme disco. Disco, yeah. I remember that. Disco was big. Yes, it was. Okay, so reception on Dirty Dancing. Yes. First, they want to show the film to the Vestron people, right? Yep. But honestly, none of them have any significant movie producing experience, so they call up this guy that they know named Aaron Russo. Okay. Aaron Russo was a producer on Trading Places. He was a producer on The Rose with Bette Midler. And so they bring him in to give his opinion on the movie. And so they're all sitting there watching, and they're really kind of watching him watch the movie, right? Yeah, sure. And they're thinking, okay, this is going. Oh, he left. Yeah. And so they get done. He turns to the board and says, burn the negatives and get the insurance money. <sighs> Such a heartbreaking story. And they're like, what? He said, burn the negatives and get the insurance money. As in, don't let anyone else watch this movie. Get your whatever money you can get back out of it right now. Burn the negatives. And it's crazy. That doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't make any sense. Right. He's so li- You can't watch that lift scene and think, burn the negative. So they convince the board to release it to one theater before they make the decision on whether to release it or not. Right. 
There's about a thousand people there to watch the movie. End of the movie, quiet for a second, and then the crowd goes absolutely nuts. <laughs> and they're like, whoa, all right, well, maybe this isn't as bad as we thought it was, right? Yeah. This sounds a lot like the reception that Purple Rain got when they would drop it and they would bring back the numbers and people were like, no, nope, don't believe it, try again. Yeah. They weren't sure, just based on this one audience reaction, that it was going to do well. They thought it was going to be like a weekend deal, you know? Mm-hmm. It'll be out for the weekend and it won't do that great and people will move on or whatever, right? Yeah. Right. And so they come to watch it fourth night after it's been released, right? Sure. And they're sitting in the theater and Eleanor Bergstein is sitting with her husband. Now, you know that the scene is that it seems to be the end scene where they're seeing the Kellerman anthem where that Johnny comes in and yeah, interrupts yeah. with her. They're, they're all saying, and it goes on for a little bit, quite a few words. Sure. Well, her husband's the one that wrote that anthem. They're like, hey, we need a finishing anthem. He's a well-regarded poet. And so they call on him. He's like, okay, I'll write the words. He writes the words to the anthem. And so they're in the theater now for four days after it's been released and that part of the movie comes on and there's this group of girls out in front who are singing along word for word with the anthem and so they leave the theater and Paul Michael Goldman is his name and he's he's like did you hear them singing my song yeah. and she's like yeah yeah your song's really good he goes do you know what this means she goes yes I know it means you wrote a really good song he goes no the movie's been out for four days they've come to see it over and over in order to memorize the words to that song Yeah. You don't know what's about to happen, but I do. This is going to be amazing. And sure enough, he was right. He was exactly right. It was a pop culture nuclear nuclear bomb. bomb. Yes. It really was. Both of these movies were pop culture nuclear bombs. Now, the woman that I heard interviewed, she had seen it like 15 times in the first two weeks or whatever. And they're like, why do you keep coming back? We Tell us why. What are we not understanding? Uh She said, listen, when I was young, I got pregnant. I married a guy that I didn't love. He left. I'm stuck. And here I am. I never, ever had the time of my life. (laughs) And this movie does it for me. That makes me want to like well up and cry hearing that story. Yeah. Yeah. So. Can't wait to talk about those songs. I know, right? One more quick story. Okay. So the director. Emil Ardorino. Yes. He tells a story. I listened to the commentary. Okay. Okay. He tells a story. His mother was two weeks away from marrying a dentist. Okay. Okay. And right before her wedding, she'd already received all of her gifts. Church is reserved. Dress is bought. Everything's planned. They're ready to go. She's ready to walk down the aisle. Okay. And then her girlfriends take her out for dancing. Sort of a bachelorette type of thing. Uh Uh-huh. She meets a guy on the dance floor. She falls in love. She calls off the wedding and never marries the dentist. What? Yep. Okay. And he was the product of that love affair. Oh my gosh. Pretty cool, right? Wow. That's awesome. No word on how that marriage ended, but... (laughs) His dad was Johnny Castle. Yeah, that's exactly right. All right. Okay, so this this is funny because this is making me think. So Rachel on Friends was supposed to marry Barry. Yes. And then she walks away. Like, she comes the very first episode. She's in the wedding dress, right? right? That's right. And then later on, she has a friend show up who's going to marry Barry. And her friend is Jennifer Grey. Yes. And Barry is a dentist. (laughs) Hey. Oh, my gosh. How about that? That's kind of crazy. Okay, that's fantastic. Well, yeah, uh, so Emil Ardolino was a key component in this thing. I he, he Obviously, dance was an important part of his upbringing, you know. It, it was the, the reason for his conception, I guess. Yeah. But they said that he had the ability to make you as the audience member feel like you were dancing. You saw all things through baby's eyes, yeah. and you felt like you were a part of what was going on on the dance floor. Yeah. Key to the movie. 
Loved it. Okay, we ready for final judgment? Let's do it. You want me to go first? Um, sure. Okay, this is easy for me. I'll, I'll be surprise. quick. All yeah, right, big surprise. Go. I'll be quick. All right. For me, both of these movies are hugely iconic. Mm -hmm. Pop culture, nuclear bombs, it's undeniable. Saturday Night Fever was huge in the 70s. Mm -hmm. Dirty Dancing was huge in the 80s. The soundtracks are massive, and I can't wait to dive into those, okay? Now, it comes down to me personally, I like to have fun and feel good when I'm at the movies, okay? The last scene, let's just take the last scene of both movies, okay? Yeah. You have a dance contest that is spoiled by bad attitudes and discontentment, gang rape, and a suicide. Mm -hmm. Roll credits. <laughs> right? Three kicks in the balls and roll credits. At the end of Dirty Dancing, you have the hero coming back for the princess, rescuing her, having the dance. They play the pop song of 1987, and he does this fantastic lift, and it's all love and hugs and kisses, and it's everybody dancing, having a great time. It's like the end of Footloose where you're at the prom and you're dancing, you're partying, you're having a great time. Slamming the football down, the better movie is Dirty Dancing, unquestionably the hero. Okay. Well, everybody has a right to their own opinion. It's just that your opinion is completely right. <laughs> it is spot on right. <laughs> I do not understand why Saturday Night Fever was the mega steamroller, amazing success that it was. I don't understand why it's Gene Siskel's favorite movie. I. But here's the thing. I was born in the 70s. I didn't experience them to any significant degree. Nothing memorable for me. I kind of remember disco from being a kid. But that scene is not a part of my life. And I, I don't know how anybody, even if it was a part of their life, could get married to what went on in that movie. I, don't, I just don't get it. I don't get it. It's not a character development thing. Uh, it, this, it's literally nothing. Like, there's no triumph. There's no change. There's no arc. It's just like, let's go further and further down and learn nothing. I, I, I don't get it. With you, 100%. Dirty Dancing may be supposed to be a chick flick, but I love it. I'd watch it over and over again. I want the hero to win sometimes, and sometimes it's okay if they don't win. But if you got a movie where dancing is supposed to be about feeling good, shouldn't you have the people who watch the movie feel good at the end? Isn't that the idea? Yeah, seems like it. Yeah. And that is why we are both on the same page on this one. Tune in next week. We will cover Dirty Dancing, the album, and then we will cover Saturday Night Fever, the album, and we will compare those two. And that one, we may reach a different conclusion. I am telling you right now, it's a different story with the soundtracks. Absolutely. Be sure and tune in. Hit that follow button. Hit that subscribe button. Be sure to do the five-star rating in the review where you mention Night Fever or Carrying Watermelons, and we will see you all next week. Ready? Let's do the lift. Ready? Oh, yeah. One, two, three. No, no. Okay.